This is Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Don Eubanks, recently retired from Metropolitan State University in the School of Social Work, associate of Dendros Group and cultural consultant. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Haley Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. And our fourth co-host, uh, Luz Marie Freyas, couldn't join us, uh, but we um, are continuing our series of of uh, discussing um, with legislatures of color and indigenous legislature. And so tonight, our or actually for this podcast, I'm really excited that we have Representative Jamie Baker Finn joining us. And uh, so, Jamie, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah. So uh, my name is Jamie Becker Finn. I am serving in my third term at the in the Minnesota House. Uh, I represent Northern Ramsey County suburbs. I live in Roseville, uh, but I'm I'm actually a Leech Laker. I grew up uh, in Cass Lake uh, on the Leech Lake Reservation, and uh, so I'm proud uh, Indigenous mom uh, raising my kids in the suburbs now. And uh, I'm currently the chair of our House Judiciary Finance and Civil Law Committee. And you're from Cass Lake. I'm from Mille Lacs. And, you know, we like those Cass Lakers. They're, they're all right. <laughs> we can just don't get us started Ooh. on who has the best wild rice and we'll be but, fine. Well, I know. I know. And it's almost that time of year. And that always leads into very, very, very deep discussions. So we won't promise we won't go there. So. Um, so Representative Finn, could you. um you know, with with previous guests that we've had on our our podcast, we've kind of started each one by asking them uh, about maybe particular um, pieces of legislation that they've authored, or things that you know they're proud that they've had an opportunity to work on and, and get passed, or even if they, it hasn't been able to be passed. And so, I would like to open that up and, and allow you to uh, inform us. Yeah, so actually the the most important thing to me uh, that we were able to get passed this year, and we actually passed it as a standalone bill and not part of an omnibus bill, which is also sort of unique in the way that our legislature currently works, uh, is the, the Healthy Start Act. And that's actually gotten a lot of a lot of press, which I wasn't necessarily uh, expecting. But the, the Healthy Start Act is now in Minnesota. Uh, the Department of Corrections now has the option to not separate um, moms who are incarcerated from their newborn babies. Our previous practice was uh, incredibly cruel and inhumane. And really, um, I feel like uh, folks have kind of given themselves credit for the fact that we weren't uh, actively shackling moms while they were birthing. Um, but then we would take the newborn baby away from their mom, um, sometimes as early as 36 hours after they were born. And that no longer is the case in Minnesota. And, um, we now have options of, you know, sort of the moms could be in a halfway house or some other kind of alternative to incarceration instead of like actively being in the prison. Um, obviously a prison is not a place that's set up, uh, for a baby. And this way we're not separating them. And, uh, you know, knowing that that is an issue that disproportionately impacts, uh, especially Native women, but um, other women of color, that's really been um, one of the bills that's been the most uh, impactful and the closest to my heart uh, of of the things that I've worked on up until this point. 
And I think that, um, you know, just for background, you know, on, 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 you know, many of the different uh, Counter Stories podcasts, we, you know, we, we talk about various systems that, that we as, uh, as uh, individuals of color and, and indigenous populations find ourselves um, engaged in the criminal justice system, you know, unfortunately becomes uh, one of those systems that we get directed to as opposed to mental health or substance abuse or, you know, other kind of preventative type of measures. So I'm assuming, you know, without much doubt that that uh, disparities in, that you just mentioned in terms of uh, the number of women, uh, indigenous women and black women and, and women of color that find themselves in these institutions is uh, probably matches the, the rest of the disparities that we see in terms of out-of-home placements for children, uh, lack of uh, job opportunities and housing, which here in Minnesota, you know, we've, we've mentioned are um, incredibly bad, uh, incredibly bad. So that's fantastic because I think I saw an uh, article actually uh, from NBC that covered that story. Yeah, we got and, a little, uh, little national press uh, there with that one. And I do also, um, I always think it's important to give a shout out to the other people who are doing the work. And um, this is really one of those bills that we would not have gotten across the finish line without the work of the Lieutenant Governor of Peggy Flanagan, um, as well as Safia Khan, another woman of color who works at the Department of Corrections, as well as the, the women who work for the Minnesota uh, Prison Doula Project. And so they were really the ones who answered my questions and were the ones that really sort of brought up uh, the, the current practices. So uh, the lieutenant governor and I were able to visit uh, Shakopee and we wanted to visit directly with the women who were living there. And that um, that was also a really impactful, really important piece of sort of the story of how that um, that bill uh, came to be. And and, you know, sort of to what you were saying before, I uh, I think a lot about, um, you know, when we talk about disparities, I think of a lot about it through uh, the lens of trauma and how that impacts our families for generations. And um, this bill in particular feels really important and really disrupting that cycle of trauma. You know, like we're not going to separate that child from their parent. Um, and we know uh, that that particular issue of, of separating children from their parents is is something that, you know, since the beginning of this country has been um, has been done to our communities. And so I think that that's really how I think about a lot of the bills that I do um, and that I work on. You know, it's not just like, oh, this feels good, but um, it really is sort of that uh, generations go looking back and looking forward um, that we can we can make things better uh, through legislation. I think this um when I read the article on NBC that uh, news that Don had sent over, I think this is an issue that a lot of people don't think of or have um, direct relation with. And so um, it's really like, it, like for me, like I'm like, I hear about this and I'm like, oh, that's really awesome. You know, and it's surprising to me. And it's also just because I don't live in, in um, an environment where I've had uh, to firsthand experience. So how is this, how did this, topic come to you um, that you took this interest in it? 
Yeah. So it really was the, um, the actually visiting with the, the women who were incarcerated and, uh, the doulas who, who work with them, um, in that visit to Shakopee. Uh, you know, many times with bills, it's like a, a lobbyist brings you a bill or some other group is working on a bill or it's something that's been floating around for a long time. This is really one of those bills where the story is that the lieutenant governor and I wanted to visit Shakopee. And in the course of that visit, um, we were both really uh, devastated to talk to some of these moms who had experienced this. And it was one of those things where, you know, once you're sort of aware of this level of cruelty and um, lack of humanity in a, you know, really a government sanctioned thing that we're doing, I think we both felt like it wasn't it was untenable to just say, oh, wow, that's really bad. Um, we both felt uh, moved to do something about it. And then um, knowing that we had sort of we also worked with uh, Dr. Rebecca Schlafer from uh, the University of Minnesota, who does a lot of work um, on, uh, you know, the impacts of people of people who are incarcerated. And we sort of had this built in team to to make it a reality. Um, I think even if folks are not connected to people who have been incarcerated uh, personally, I think the thing that really resonated with with people was talking about it in terms of, you know, how many of us, uh, especially as uh, as women have, have given birth, how many of us are parents, um, you know, our grandparents or or, you know, aunts or uncles are sort of familiar with that process of when somebody has a baby and, you know, they get uh, released from the hospital and it's this joyful thing where you're going home and you get to see everybody and everybody sees the baby. Well, that time when they're released from the hospital, that is the point where the mom was handing the baby off sometimes to a stranger, not knowing when she was going to see her baby again. And the realization of, um, you know, if you sort of walk through that in your mind, and especially for those of us who um, our parents, you know, and you know what that felt like when you were walking out to the car with your baby for the first time. And, um, and so it's really like this really joyful time for so many people and here for these moms, um, many of whom are in for short amounts of time or for, um, maybe, uh, technical violations. Um, we're then doing this incredibly cruel thing at this moment that is supposed to be so important and pivotal um, for both the mom and the baby. And so I think people were able to sort of um, find common humanity in thinking about it that way, even if they aren't familiar with our, our prison system or what it might be like to be incarcerated. I think I'm so glad you brought that point up. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, with from from a clergy standpoint, um, one of the things that we often get are are women after they have had this experience and the toll that it takes for if we're if we're trying to, to get somebody back on their feet, back into a place of, of, of having success in society. This is a huge traumatic ordeal. Um, and, I, and I love the fact that you put forward that point about who's in jail, right? Technical violations. We, we, we forget that a vast majority of our prison population are there for issues that aren't matters of public safety, right? They're, they're, they're there for matters of <laughs> lack of public compliance, right? And so things that are not violent, things that, that have no indication that they, um, that they they wouldn't be successful in healthy mothers. And so there's the toll on the child and the toll on the, on the mother. And I think it's very, very important to be able to pull forward. And so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up um, about who we're actually talking about and putting that face to it. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering about as... 
Um, the time that, so, so now I get the time to spend, which is so important for the development of the child, right? To be able to, to breastfeed with the mother, to be able to have that skin to skin contact, to be able to have, um, that formative space, which has so much implications on the, the brain development of children. We, 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 we don't pay as much attention to that. I'm curious, um, you know, this having just, just come into, into effect, what are we hoping to see at the end? Right. And I, and I know healthy mothers, you know, dealing with the trauma, I, I, I get those pieces. But this has public health benefits down the line. I'm curious what you're finding or what you're hoping to see down the line as a result. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, we, we haven't uh, it, it was kind of a crazy end to the legislative session, a really uh, rough extra five weeks of really intense, especially on the judiciary and public safety. Uh, we were the last bill to come together. And so, uh, you know, we really had intense, really intense uh, end of session. So, um, you know, I haven't had those conversations yet with the Department of Corrections as far as, you know, ways that we can sort of um, keep track of folks and see how they're doing. But I think our our goal and the the thinking and I think, you know, is borne out in other research and longitudinal studies is, you know, people that leave um, leave their time being incarcerated, you know, when they go back out into the community, when they have good connections with their family and with their children and they have something um, waiting for them, um, they, they do much better. You know, I myself am uh, a child of a parent who was incarcerated, and I think we often forget about the families and the ripples that happen throughout our families and communities when a person is incarcerated. And, you know, to your point, the vast majority of the people who are currently incarcerated are not actually uh, risks to the broader society. They may, um, you know, there are still struggles, but that gets to all those other disparities as far as access to safe housing and healthcare and uh, mental health care and, and jobs and all those other disparities. Uh, what if, what if we put our resources into those things instead of um, incarcerating folks? And so that's, um, it's very important on its own, I think, because for each of those individual families, it is truly life changing to not have that child be separated from their mom. But I think it's also a, a step on the way to this broader conversation about like, what are we doing? What do we want from this system? Um, I'm also the author of a bill. It's the Minnesota Rehabilitation and Reinvestment Act. And that's a bill that essentially would give people the opportunities to uh, reduce their sentences if they participate. Um, you'd essentially build a plan for every single person of what they need for them to get them back and functioning and back in their communities. And it actually saves the state a lot of money um, to do that. And then we reinvest those funds in programming, in uh, victim services and other supports for, for communities. And so I think that's sort of part of this broader conversation about, you know, how we want these systems to work, because for many people, the system will just keep working the way it always has been if we don't um, force it to change. And, um, and I think there really is a movement behind it. And I don't think it is just a straight, uh, you know, uh, Democrat versus Republican issue. I think there are people in, in both parties who believe in redemption and believe in the ability of people um, to do better when we support them. So that's really um, I feel like this is just the first step in other good work that we can do moving forward. Yeah, th there are so many intersections um, 
and how, you know, you and Anthony touched on various intersections. And, you know, for a while in the 2000s, I was director of the Kim Clout division for DHS. And so, you know, uh, and I don't remember the, the actual numbers, but the statistics were were very high that when communities of color, indigenous populations were involved with the court system or the police system or, or using drugs, instead of being directed toward treatment or directed for prevention, they were directed to the criminal justice system. Um, and so, you know, our prison, our prison population is filled with thousands, hundreds of thousands of individuals who should have been directed toward treatment and recovery. Um, instead, they were criminalized and, and sent to the criminal justice system. So we, you know, we know that study after study has shown that that disparities exist, especially when we know when 55, 55% of all drug use happens in the suburbs. But that's, you know, when, when, a, when a white kid gets stopped with and is found with drugs, he's uh, sent home. You know, one of the largest barriers for mothers in obtaining sobriety or be successfully completing treatment programs was that most programs didn't allow mothers to be with their kids. And not necessarily newborn, but just with their children. And, and, um, and so, you know, we tried to make changes to the rules that allowed it easier for women to uh, go in and complete treatment with their children. I mean, and so, you know, so the, I see this legislation as a continuation of that. And as you were speaking, I felt I was sitting here listening to you talk about how you just became aware of this issue of women being separated or not being able to keep newborns with them while they were incarcerated. And I felt bad because I was aware of that issue. That issue existed back when I was director of the chemical health division. It was an issue that we talked about back then, but there was no emphasis to try to make, create legislation to change it. There are so many different things within all these various systems that we get caught up in day to day trying to change and improve that sometimes some of these things slip through the cracks. And uh, so, I mean, because when I saw that article on NBC on, on this legislation, I immediately emailed these guys and said, look, we got to bring her in and have her on board because that was fantastic. Are there any other things, laws or legislation that you had the opportunity to author or champion this past session? Yeah. So one thing I wanted to get back to that you mentioned earlier when you were talking sort of about the differences when different types of people, um, you know, sort of interface with law enforcement and, you know, sort of are in the criminal justice system. And one of those things is that my number one priority as judiciary chair is increasing um, budgets for our public defenders. And this is a we are constitutionally required as a state to provide public defense um, to people who cannot afford it. And that is a lot of Minnesotans who rely on our public defenders and our public defenders, um, their caseloads are too high. They work too many hours and, um, even the best of them, there's only so much you can do when your caseload is so high. And we also have high turnover because 
we're ha- we're asking them to do too much. And so, um, but we can't, we can't rely on like a handful of good hearted attorneys to keep doing this incredibly hard work, um, when it might not be the best thing for their families. You know, some folks aren't able to do that. And so I, um, you know, increasing our funding to our public defenders is something that's incredibly important to me. Um, other things that I have I've worked on, and this one hasn't gotten any uh, attention, but I think uh, you all would be interested in this, is we were able to get uh, tribal consultation is now in state law. That is something that has been in executive order through multiple governors. And uh, this past session, we were able to actually make that in statute. So it no, will no longer uh, depend on who the governor happens to be. Uh, that language is now law in Minnesota. And so our agencies are required to do that consultation, that government to government consultation um, with our tribes. And that is something um, that as as someone who grew up uh, at Leech Lake and, uh, you know, now is a policymaker and more often than not, our uh, tribal governments are treated like just another uh, special interest group under, you know, I'm sure because of Lieutenant Governor Flanagan, you know, they tend to do better than they did 10 years ago, but there's still a ways to go. And um, this way it can just totally be baked in and be part of their ongoing policies and protocols and not something that's sort of um, in theory at the whim of whoever the governor happens to be. So that's another piece of legislation that I'm uh, really proud of. I also do a lot of work uh, in the environment space. It's one committee I've been on the whole time I've been um, in the legislature is the Environment and Natural Resources Committee. So sort of those issues that impact our land, um, our wildlife, our, our game and fish, all those things are really important to me uh, as well. So I kind of have a wide ranging, uh, <laughs> a lot of things that I work on uh, in, in the legislature. You know, that um, tribal consultation one is huge. Um, you know, having worked for the Malax ban of Ojibwe Indians as commissioner and having worked for the state, I've had an opportunity to kind of be on both sides of that coin. And tribal consultation was is one of those terms that was used widely but not understood fully by the state. And so I think to have that codified in law is absolutely fantastic. I, I have to ask, is was there any hook in there that holds the state accountable if they don't adhere to that law? And the reason why I ask that, and I'm not trying to put you on a, on, you know, on a hot seat or anything, it's because it's one of the inherent problems with the Indian Child Welfare Act. When it was created, children couldn't just be removed from our families, but there was no hook in that law that held the states or the counties responsible if they didn't follow ICWA. So I was wondering, is there something built in there that holds these entities responsible? Yeah. Does that so, make sense? So there aren't, you know, we don't have like penalties built in uh, to to the law, but I think, you know, like ICWA and um, many issues that impact our tribal communities, it, it's the courts. And so making sure that the language in the tribal consultation bill was really clear about what's required, that's sort of the hook. Instead of having, you know, sometimes you'll have sort of wishy-washy language that, um, 
you know, how does a court interpret that and how do they apply that if they're, um, if the law is being violated? And so I think, you know, um, Unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, that tends to be the answer, I think, with a lot of uh, issues that impact our, our tribal communities. But I think that that's the nature of it being a government to government relationship. Um, and and of course, and I I'm one of those people that as an attorney and an indigenous person, you know, I, I, I would be remiss if I did not remind folks that our treaties are the supreme law of the land uh, as dictated in the U.S. Constitution. So um, I, I don't like to miss an opportunity to remind people of that fact uh, when we're talking about uh, tribes and, uh, and, and the courts. It's important to bring, I'm so glad we just drop in jewels and nuggets. So I really appreciate that Um, because uh, so much of our discourse ends up being without context. And so um, it's easy to, to convince somebody that something is threatening their way of being because we don't have an understanding of these things that supersede our, our understanding of the world. You know, um, uh, Don brought us to, to Malax and kind of, took us around and gave us, you know, some crash course in 101, right? Don, I've come a long way since since not knowing that there were seven uh, uh, nations, and, I, and I'm only up to four, so I can't name them all yet. I'm on my way, though. Um, but but being able to know that there is is important pieces, you know, um, the the restoration of land, you know, one of the wonderings I'm, I have is, you know, with, rep, with, with uh, Deb Hollins, who's now um, heading the interior, we have a renewed conversation about the violation of treaties, about um, the fact that that land needs, you know, the, some land is being returned, or at least the boundaries are being reassessed um, to the way that they're supposed to be under our treaty. It just seems like there's so much that we are missing in our day-to-day conversations or knowledge about not only tribal interactions, um, but also um, the data that surrounds all of what we're doing. I mean, it's you know, people didn't understand that most of the people in jail are not in there for violent crimes, right? Um, they're, they're, folks aren't understanding that there are tribal treaties that supersede um, others. I mean, that being the law of the land, that's huge, right? And that's also something that I think many folks don't don't hear. Um, I'm also keenly aware that there are many folks who are trying to restrict our even even our ability to teach this to the next generation. And so um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, these are great bills that have moved, but it can't, it can't have been without resistance. And so I'm curious about that. And I'm curious about you and how you kind of bring the nuance that isn't talked about and isn't common knowledge to dominant cultural spaces. And, and how do you fare through that? How do you kind of keep yourself together through all of that? Yeah. Um, so that's, I'm, I'm glad you asked about that because it is, uh, you know, I, I didn't walk into the legislature and, you know, it's not like I can walk in and look at how um, one of my older white male colleagues operates and just emulate that. That never would have worked for me, both because that's not who I am, but that also is just um, I actually was just talking to somebody who was thinking about running for office the other day. And I, I put, you know, they're like, I don't know if I can do that. And it's like, well, there are multiple ways to be successful in this space. And so this idea that there's it's sort of like parenting, like there isn't just one right way to be a good parent. Um, there are many different ways to be a successful legislator. Um, for me, it's, uh, you know, sort of been, uh, I guess, building this reputation of somebody who's just going to be straight with folks. 
Um, that's just how I operate. Um, I think it's also helpful to be one of those people that does their homework. I, I know what I'm talking about. I don't, um, I don't carry bills that I haven't read. I don't, I, you know, I like to actually be able to get into the details and sort of know things, uh, inside and out. And, um, you know, those are all things that are helpful. And I know you guys have talked in, in previous episodes about the, the Posse Caucus, the People of Color and Indigenous Caucus. And I think, um, you know, we really are at this point where we sort of have this critical, uh, critical mass of that is the dopest name. I'm sorry, I just had to say that. I love that. Yeah, and I, I have, um, I came in and I was elected in 2016. Um, so I was, I was, I love being able to say that I was one of the founding members of the Posse Caucus in 2017. It was myself and Representative Flanagan, uh, Ilhan Omar, Aaron May Quaid, um, you know, really, uh, Mary Kunish Pudin. It was just this, um, we really started, that was really, I think, when the shift started to happen. And that was when we had the critical mass to start the Posse Caucus. And, um, you know, five years in now, um, we're, we're even stronger. You know, we have even more members. We rep, many of us are from the suburbs. It's not just like, oh, it's like an offshoot of the Minneapolis St. Paul Caucus. No. Um, we represent the whole state. We have Heather Keeler up from the Moorhead region, um, another indigenous woman, uh, who was just elected last year. I can't believe I forgot Fu Li also came in in 2016. Um, Fu's, Fu's one of my, uh, one of my besties in the, the legislature and, um, also the chair of the bonding committee. I mean, that for folks who aren't familiar with the legislature, that is an incredibly powerful position and he does a really great job and is, uh, so smart and capable and we're just so lucky to have him in that role. Um, and so really, you know, we have each other's backs and I think that's, um, in a way that, um, many caucuses don't, um, we, we tend to be there for each other. And there's enough of us too, that on any given committee, there's at least a couple members of the posse caucus. So it's really helpful to be in these spaces and not be alone. Uh, in my very first committee in 2017 was in the environment and natural resources committee, which, uh, overwhelmingly has always been a very white male space. And I, I remember that day I walked into the room and I looked around and I was, um, the youngest member on the committee, uh, one of only three women on the committee and the only indigenous person in the entire room. So including the staff and the lobbyists and all the other members of the committee, there were no other um, posse folks in that, you know, no other BIPOC folks in that entire room. And uh, sort of in that moment, it was like a couple seconds of shrinking back a little and then like, Oh, this is why I'm here. Uh, this is, this is what, uh, this is what I meant to do. And so um, and I think that kind of brings it full circle as far as, you know, how I keep myself, uh, you know, <laughs> how I do this work. Um, you know, I, for me, it's like using our, um, you know, remembering to smudge when I'm having a rough time. Um, it's, it's going back home. I am, will soon be going back home to, uh, for rising. Uh, I've been lucky to my whole time in office. I've had, uh, uh, Peggy Flanagan as, uh, my, my uh my partner in a lot of this work and so just knowing that no matter what um i've got those folks who have my back has been really uh incredibly important and very different you know if you think of um you know carlos mariani's experience or rena moran's experience and not necessarily having those kind of built-in supports uh of other folks living this same crazy life <laughs> so um you had mentioned that um you know this past session ended 
kind of wonky. Um, do, do you feel satisfied with the way the, the last session went um, and, the, and the initiatives that you're leading? Um, and, and what are you thinking about for next session? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, there was just a story in the, the Star Tribune about, you know, sort of like us missing the mark on, uh, you know, not getting enough done for equ equity and um, some of the racial justice initiatives. And I think um, I honestly think that selling us short a little bit in what did get accomplished, despite uh, having a divided legislature. I personally had 20 bills that were signed into law. Um, you know, the end of the legislative session was really I mean, that was that was the toughest negotiations I've done um, in in my life and any of my different hats that I've worn uh, throughout the years, you know, really, really difficult stuff. But um, we did get, I think, some really impactful things done, um, in particular, the fines and fees reform bill that uh, Representative Cedric Frazier was carrying. We got that. Uh, we civil asset forfeiture reform, uh, criminal sexual conduct reform, uh, as well as, you know, there's there's some smaller things like, uh, you know, court fees paid by tribes when they are um, part of cases involving uh, indigenous kids. You know, we I personally had a couple bills. One was the um, driver's license reform. So we are no longer going to take away your driver's license for things that aren't related to public safety. Uh, you know, we were taking people's driver's licenses away for really, um, you know, completely punishment based. So we are going to stop that practice. Uh, somebody gets charged with a minor crime, you know, they get a ticket, they fail to pay the ticket. And then we take their driver's license away. And then they still have to drive to get to work or to bring their kids to school. And then they get pulled over and now they get another ticket because they're driving without a license. And then it's like this huge cycle of, um, you know, really punishing people often for uh, for struggling instead of helping them. And so um, that was another uh, piece of legislation that we got done this year, as well as um, one thing that was not in the judiciary uh, public safety bill, but I'm really proud of is also we uh, we now will require uh representation, uh, so attorney representation in child protection cases where parents are facing uh, losing, um, you know, their termination of parental rights. And so uh, up until now, there has not been a requirement that that is the case. So we may have parents going into, you know, the most impactful court hearing of their entire life without an attorney um, assisting them. And that uh, will also no longer be the case. No, there weren't as many policing reforms as some folks wanted, but there were some important equity things um, in the criminal justice and judiciary space that did get done. It's just every issue is so complex and there are so many dimensions and so many things that you have to take into consideration. So, yeah, I always tell people I'm like, I um, it's it's not good for me politically. You know, ideally, uh, if you want to get reelected and you're on the ballot every two years, you know, strategically, it would probably make more sense to pick things that you can get done um, in just two years and put on a pamphlet. But um, that's not how I operate. And I tend to end up um, stepping into some of those those bigger problems that take a really long time to fix. But that's just uh, that's just how I'm wired um, and it's it's worked out, you know, fairly well for me thus far. So, um, you know, we've had definitely had some successes, but definitely have a, a long list of other things uh, that uh, I will continue to work on and look forward to working on, really. 
being uh, head of the judiciary, um, you know, uh, Representative Mariani spoke to that. Um, he also spoke to the uh, requirement that Representative Rena Moran has put in the House Ways and Means Committee for ha- asking the question about equity. And I'm, um, I'm curious what other um, committees are taking on that um, that look to ask the question, how does this affect um, how, how, what effect is this going to have on uh, the disparities that are already present? Yeah, really great question. And I think, um, you know, this is my first year as a chair. And, um, you know, for many of the Posse Caucus members who are chairs, this is a way we were planning to do it anyway. It's just super helpful to have uh, Chair Rena Moran backing us up in that. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's sort of building that expectation when people bring a bill in front of your committee that if you don't uh, bring it up in the way you're summarizing in the, the bill and the handouts that you give us about who is impacted. Um, someone on my committee is going to ask you or I'm going to ask you and you can sort of have that expectation that that's a thing that that we're going to do. Um, I think just having um, folks like myself and Ruth Richardson and, and Fu Lee and just people with sort of um, that bring these more diverse worldviews to the work. Legal Aid came in with sort of their ask for their budget for the year. And um, I asked and they were like, oh, this will allow us to serve, uh, you know, 30 percent of the demand that we have for services. And I and I questioned them to say, well, what would it take to actually serve everybody who needs the services? And um up until that point, nobody had ever asked them that. They had always, they had seen the budget process as, um, don't ask for too much because you're never going to get it anyway. And, uh, sort of this, you know, begging for, uh, for support instead of this sort of worldview of like, what do you want the world to look like? And what is it going to take for us to get there? Cause if we don't start with seeing the problem that way, we're definitely never going to get there. Um, if you can't even tell me what that dollar amount is to properly fund the public defender's office or civil legal aid, um, you know, if you're already starting at a point where you're assuming that you're going to fail, well, then you're going to fail. And so I think um, those are also ways that just sort of having different folks leading, um, you know, and that that impacts things like equity, it impacts all those things, um, instead of setting people up to fight each other um, for how many dollars each group gets. Um, what if we start with uh, what we need and then we build our, our budget around how we get to what we need? And so those are just kind of um, different ways that, uh, you know, sort of our, our class is bringing uh, to the legislature that haven't necessarily um, been done that way before. You know, Representative Jamie Becker Finn, um, I want to thank you for joining us. I'm listening, you know, to you talk. Like I said, this is uh, the fourth in our series. And I have two reactions. It makes me sad because I worked for the state a decade ahead before you guys <laughs> showed up. I'm listening to your discussion, I'm listening to you describe the work that you do and how you and the posse go about doing this work. And it brings joy to my heart because I was there plugging away when we didn't have individuals like you who understood the importance of that. And so it was like banging our heads against the wall. And and um, to hear someone frame it and, 
as you did uh, is like <laughs> I was a decade too early. <laughs> and um, uh, because, you know, the conversations I had at that time were nowhere along this line. So thank you so much. I hope that we're able to have you back again. I think, you know, I'm thinking I'm learning so much more by having individuals like you and Carlos Mariani and Ruth Richardson on this show. And I'm hoping that our audience is also learning because it's very intricate. It's, you know, there's so much that happens in those behind those closed doors that most Minnesotans are aware of. I'm Don Eubanks, a, a retired professor from Metropolitan State University, associate of Dendros Group and cultural consultant. I'm Anthony Galloway, senior partner at Dendros Group and executive director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora. And I'm Haley Lee, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. We have our special guest, Representative Jamie Becker Fenn. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, longtime listener, uh, first time guest, but I, I will definitely be back if you'll have me. Thanks for joining us. This program is a co production of the Counter Stories crew, the Other Media Group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities. What support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund?